God, thank you so much for your word that you've given us, and thank you for the opportunity to study it freely. Um, thank you that you open our eyes to see what's in your word. And we pray that you would do that today. You, we pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that this wouldn't be an academic book knowledge puffed upness to say we know what the Bible says, but that we could say we've seen you more clearly and your son more clearly and understood the gospel more clearly so that we can follow you more closely. But I pray you would do this today by your spirit and, and pray that it would just be fun and encouraging for us as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last time we got together um, a month ago, we went over a couple of Bible study tools or Bible study principles so that when we approach the word, whether it's in our uh, personal daily devotions or whether we're trying to read the Bible to our children or maybe in our discipleship groups, our smaller gatherings, maybe we want to read the Bible there too together. Um, so we've got, we, we had a couple of tools that we presented and we're going to present a couple more today. Does anybody remember the ones that we talked about last time for those of you who were here last time? Any of, any of the ones that we talked about are fine. Who remembers? Context. We talked about context. That's right. What, and what is the principle of context about? Why is it important to think about context when we study the Bible? Because then we understand the audience that it was written for. Yes, we. That's right. Yeah. When we come to the Word, we we can't just say, "Oh, what does this just mean to me right now?" We have to recognize this was written a long time ago, and how did the original author want his original audience to understand it? So we need to understand perhaps the the culture behind it. What If there's something in here about false teachers, well, who were the false teachers and what were they teaching? Um, we looked at a passage in uh, Jeremiah, and that was so key to understand this, the history of the people in Jeremiah's day to get at what the that special verse that we so often take out of context. Um, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a future. We saw that verse in context, and wow, it just opened up a whole new thing for us. Yeah, so context is key when we want to come to the scriptures. Uh, what, what's another principle or tool that we learned? Anybody? Yeah, so we, we presented this idea of staying on the line, which is really... Um, it's a conviction more than a, than a, than a tool that you're going to use. Um, it's a conviction saying, when I come to the Bible, I don't want to like add things that I think would be helpful or take away things that I think are maybe irrelevant. I just want to stay on the line of Scripture. I want to interpret it, and I want to stick to that. Even if it's a hard truth to hear, or even if I think... Uh, well, yeah, I, I, that, that's just it. We, we want to stay on the line, and that's a conviction we want to come to. We want to do the hard work of Bible study. Um, there was a third tool that we talked about. It was really brief at the end of last time. Does anyone remember that one? Frameworks. Frameworks, yeah. Tech, we called it text and framework. So all of us have frameworks. Um, we all grew up in certain cultures. We all, well, we all here are female, so we have a female framework. Um, we're, we're products of, of our, just of our lives. And we bring those experiences and frameworks to the Bible. And sometimes 
reinterpret what God says in light of those frameworks. So the principle was we need to let the text rule over our frameworks. We need the text to speak and not impose our frameworks onto the Bible. Um, those are the first three tools that we gave. And today we're going to give two more. I'm first going to talk about finding the main point of a text. Um, and then Shine is going to talk to us about connecting to the gospel. Actually, you all have an agenda. Where did I put my agenda? Did I put it under? I did. Do you all, do you all see there's a handout there for you on the tables? Um, there's some agendas, and then there's actually um, half sheets of paper where you can take notes and some pens there if you didn't bring a, uh, any paper with you. Um, but you'll see there that for this hour right now, we're going to talk about finding the main idea, and then uh, Shainu will come up after that and talk about finding the gospel in all of Scripture. Um, I'm not sure that I said my name is Colleen McFadden. Did I say that? <laughs> well, here it is on the sheet, because I don't think I've met every one of you. I know most of you. Um, and Shiny Thomas is right here. Yeah, okay. Uh, so finding the main idea, that's what we want to give ourselves to first. Why is it important, though, to find the main idea of a text? Right? That, that sounds kind of academic, doesn't it? I mean, can't I just, in the morning, open my Bible and just read it and glean some inspiration from it? I mean, is, that, is that sufficient? Um, why should we spend time figuring out how to grasp the main message of a text? Uh, I know when I come to my own Bible reading, I frequently glean lots of... Um, impressions about the text, but I never really get at uh, the actual meaning of the Bible text. Sometimes also when I read the Bible, I read a passage, and I have no idea what it's talking about. Like a lot of times in the Old Testament, and especially in like poetry, even in um, some of the Psalms, I just... I, I have no idea what they're talking about. I, I, I want to understand more than just a simple reading will give me. Um, honestly, what I really want to do is, it's like our pastors on Sunday. They're so good at preaching. They, they just take a whole passage and they can distill it down to like one sentence. Can't they? Sometimes just a few words. They just get the whole big idea. I want to do that. I want to be able to read a passage, study it, and be able to say, this is what it's about. I want to be able to do what our pastors do. On, I don't want to be able to then preach it to people. I just want to be able to know it for myself. I, if he can do it on Sunday, then I want to be able to do it every day when I read the scriptures. Um, so I think that our study today is going to give us a couple of benefits. So I, I want to tell you the value add of this hour um, so that... You, so that you will stay engaged for this hour. I think there's a couple of benefits. One is we will have fruitful Bible reading for our own lives. We will, we will walk away today with some simple strategies, simple reading strategies to help us have fruitful Bible reading. Who doesn't want that? That's a huge benefit. Um, I want to know what God has to say to me in the scriptures. I don't want to know what I think. I want to know what he says because he knows best what I need to hear. We're going to have fruitful Bible reading. And I think the second really big benefit that we're going to get from this time together is the ability to discern. So discernment. Um, we hear other people's Bible interpretations all the time. 
We go to conferences. We read Christian books. We read Christian blogs. We read Christian devotionals. We hear preaching. I think our preaching here at Seven Mile is excellent. It's exceptional. But we may be visiting our home church at some point, or we might be um, on vacation listening, or maybe we listen to podcasts. We are constantly hearing Bible interpretations. Maybe you even have a children's Bible at home that you read to your kids, or even children's uh, storybooks that talk about um, the different stories that we see in the Old Testament. We need to discern, I think, as, as faithful Christians, I think it's so helpful to be able to discern what is on target, what is God's message, and maybe what's slightly off. Um, that's, a, that's one huge benefit that we're going to get today. I I think Ephesians, there's, a, there's a verse in Ephesians 4 that sums this up well, if we're able to discern um, the message that we're hearing from others. Ephesians 4.14 says, he, he wants us to grow up to maturity, Paul is saying, he wants us to grow up into maturity so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There are lots of doctrines out there that are being taught, and can we truly say, I, I, I know what the main point is because I've been studying it versus just taking someone else's waves and being carried along by it, okay? Um, so I hope you're convinced that we're going to gain some, something good today uh, while having fun at the same time. Um, any questions to start off? Because we're going to jump into it. Any questions? Good? Okay. Um, let me just give us a couple of guidelines to start our time. There are a few general guidelines when we want to ask a question about finding the main point of a text. The first one is absolutely always to pray. That's what we got to do. We got to pray. Oops. Let's do this. We want to be people who pray. The book of Proverbs says, For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. If this is what God's word says, that the Lord gives wisdom and that we can increase in learning, well, then we should be asking God to do that. We should be asking God, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us understanding into your word. He's the one who opens the eyes. He's the one who penetrates our hearts. He's the one that by his spirit that can help us have fruitful Bible reading. So we pray before we come to a text. We pray as we're reading the text. We pray at the end of the text. Right? We, we, we should be constantly people who pray. If we think we can approach the text in purely our own strength, it will be very academic. And it, it, we need to pray. Yeah, that's, that's what I'll say. We, we, we need to be people who pray. I, I wish I could do a whole session just on prayer. It's so key. Um, we need to be people who pray. Another guideline that's going to help us find the main point is what I already mentioned earlier is this idea of context. I say it right now because we're not going to have time to look at the context of a lot of the passages that we'll look at, um, but it's very important. So I, some of us might know some of the context behind the passages we review today, um, and I just want to point out that 
Where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today is not in context, but we need to employ uh, the idea of how the original audience understood it. So that's why I wanted you to write it down in your notes so that we didn't walk away thinking that wasn't important. Where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, though, in this hour is on this guideline whoops, of literary structure. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. We need to know what kind of literature we're reading when we come to the Bible, and we need to know what characterizes each type of literature. We're not going to read the Psalms the same way we read Romans, right? We just we can't do that because they're very different types of literature. Um, what are, what are some types that, as you think about your Bible reading? What are some types of literature that you've encountered in your reading of scripture what would you say letters. you have letters that's right so the epistles in the new testament yeah what else is there narratives, narratives. lots of stories you have them in the old testament with uh, the history of of the is people of israel and you even have it in the new testament like the parables right that jesus he tells these stories yeah what else Poems, yeah. Where do you find the poems? Actually, I could write some of these down, maybe. Where do you find the poems, Mary, or anybody? Psalms. Yeah, you have poems in the Psalms. You also have poems, say, in um, the Gospels, like in the beginning of Luke. You have um, Mary's song. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat, right? Um, you even have it in uh, um, in Genesis. Where do you see it in Genesis? Oh, you think of Genesis 2, when the woman is made, and he kind of sings this little ditty, saying, oh, woman, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. That's right. Yeah, it actually is a little poem. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what other types? Any other types of literature that? You have prophetic literature. Yeah, prophetic literature um, is, is interesting because um, within it, you do have somewhat of a narrative, somewhat of a story sometimes, but then at other times when they are declaring God's message to the people, it's almost kind of like a letter in some ways in, in that it's somebody speaking to them, a message, and that's what Paul's letters are, speaking a message. And then sometimes they, they also have little ditties in there. Uh, the, the, the imagery that they use makes us think of the Psalms makes us think of some poetry. Um, we're actually not going to look at any prophetic literature today in this session. Um, we're actually going to look at, I think we're going to look at some letters and we're going to look at some narratives. We don't have time to go through it all, so we, Shino and I just thought, well, we'll just pick a couple of them to work through today. Um, here's, let me do the principle, though, so that we can walk away with what, what we know we're doing. This is the principle. If, if literary structure is so key, why is it so key? It's because every text in the Bible has a literary structure, and that literary structure helps to reveal the main idea. Every text has a literary structure. We'll find that when we study today. Every text has a literary structure. The literary structure helps to reveal the main idea. Now, I wasn't a literary major in college, so a lot of this is like really hard for me to do. It, I'm not naturally given to like wanting to read. I, I never wanted to read the assigned 
books that they gave in lit class. I didn't want to do that. But the Bible, whether I like it or not, is a book. It's a book, and it's given to us in narratives and letters and poems. And I need to know some, we need to know just some literary functions in order to understand this well. Let me actually introduce this now by the way of a picture. Let's just, let's just think about this. So if that's our principle, every text has a literary structure and the literary structure helps to reveal the main idea, then a picture that I would draw to really emphasize this is a picture of a house. So some of you know a couple years ago my husband and I bought a fixer-upper, right? And it's a very old house and when we bought it, it like nothing really functioned at all and we thought oh this is our chance like redo renovate do lots of different stuff to it right um and all of my experience about renovation comes from hgtv and the show fixer upper and what happens on that show when you want to renovate you walk into an old house with all of these little closed in rooms and you think open concept right <laughs> That's, what, that's, that's the exciting thing nowadays, to just tear down the walls. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to go in and tear down some walls until our contractor told us about these really pesky little things called load-bearing walls that you can't just tear down or the structure of the building would be in jeopardy, right? So I asked, well, what, load, what walls are load-bearing? And he said, I don't know. We got to take down the light fixtures and the wallpaper and the drywall and then we can get to what's behind all of that and see the structure, the structural, the architectural um, design to know what is load-bearing and what is not. It's the same thing when we come to any literary passage in the Bible. We need to uncover the, the details, the light fixtures, the wallpaper and get at that that architectural design. Um, but just like there, it, for houses, there's, well, we live in a colonial. Some of you might live in split levels. There's also Cape Cods and Craftsmen and Victorian and ranches. There, there's so many different architectural designs. Not every house has the same uh, design of low-bearing walls. Same in scripture. We have to use different, um, there are different architectural designs, and we'll work through a couple different strategies to see how we uncover those load-bearing walls, to know this is what carries the, the story, or this is what carries the passage. Do I just see this real quick? Um, I'm going to turn to a really easy structure in a text, so, just so we can see this in action. Why don't you turn to the opening pages of Scripture to Genesis 1. We have a really easy, easy one to see here. In Genesis 1, we're, we're thinking about every text has a literary structure, and that literary structure helps to reveal the main idea. So in Genesis 1... The, the load-bearing walls come in the form of repetition. Sometimes that's what happens in, in um, literature. If an author keeps repeating something over and over and over again, that probably is related to his main idea, right? If he's just going to keep pounding you with it, that probably is what he's trying to help you remember. That's probably the moral of the story. That's the takeaway. So what, let me hear from you, what are some of the repeated ideas or repeated words that we see in Genesis 1? This is the creation story. Human? And God said, 
And God said, that's right. God continually spoke things into creation. Yep, and God said, what else? There was evening and there was morning. Yeah, every day kind of continues on like that. It's this repeated phrase. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. Yeah, what else is there? And it was so. So God said it and it happened. God spoke things and it was so. That's right. What else? And it was good. It was good. Every day we have that. And it was good. And it was good. And then even on the last day, it was very good. That's Sorry, it wasn't the last day. It was the sixth day. It was very good. Yeah. That's it. Actually, there's another um, quick little strategy. You have the repetitions that come. But then there's some surprises among the repetitions. Like, it was very good on the sixth day. Well, what's so special about that sixth day? Well, there's something else that is surprising among the repetition where God spoke lots of things into creation. On the sixth day, he created man in his own image. But no other day has that. No other day has that things were created in his own image. It's just on the sixth day. And that sixth day was very good. So perhaps the moral of the story could be a sense of there is ordered creation with the pinnacle of creation being man created in God's image. I'm actually stealing some language. If anybody came to one of our mini retreats at the beginning of this year, Sarah Enslin spoke on this passage and that was her main point. Uh, That's what she gleaned from her study that there was this order to creation that God made all these things just by his word, made all these good things. But there is this pinnacle of creation, which is man made in God's image. And it was very good. That's just simple literary structure that we just saw in just a few minutes. And this is probably something that you've done. You've probably seen this already, right? So you already think about literary structure without even knowing that's, that's what you're doing. Any questions so far? Feel free to chime in anytime, too. Yeah? Okay. Okay, let's look at some architectural design. Um, let's look at... Let's tackle narrative. That's what we'll do. So we're going to look at narrative, or another uh, way to word that is a story. Um, What is the key to the literary structure of a narrative? Am I covering this up? Sorry, people. Can you see? Yeah? Okay. So if we're looking at a narrative, there are two key traits to narrative. This will be our, our, um, our way in, our, our hammer and our um, wallpaper remover. This, this, this is for us to uncover the literary structure. There's two main ones when it comes to narrative, and that is what is the plot and who are the characters. Those are the two main things that we need to think about. Anytime you read a story in scripture, or any story, any good story has to have a good plot and it has to have characters. That's just the way stories work. That's the way uh, literature works when it comes to narratives. Let's take, for example, the three little pigs. Who are the characters? I know this is not a biblical story, but who are the characters? The three little pigs and the wolf. That's right, the three little pigs and the wolf. And what's the plot? The wolf wants to eat the pigs. 
You want all this? Come on. I know. It's really simple. That's why I started with it. They all try to build different houses. Why are they trying to build different houses? To protect themselves from that big bad wolf that wants to eat them. And then what? And the plot thickens and he huffs and puffs and tries to blow houses down, but he couldn't get that last house. That's right. Why couldn't he get that last house? Because it was made of brick. And what's interesting about that is that it took a long time to make that brick house, didn't it? The first two little pigs just wanted to whip something together really fast. But the, the last pig said, no, I'm going to spend some extra time and some extra money maybe to build you know, the brick and the mortar so that I have a solid house. Well, what's the moral of the story? What's the main point? What's the takeaway from that plot? I kind of just said it, didn't I? Yeah, it's kind of like the slow and steady. Like if, if I want my house, if I want to be, if I want to protect myself, then I'm going to be slow and steady in building the right foundational, the right house, um, so that that big bad wolf can't come get me. The moral of the story is not, um, well, I need to really pace out my breaths so that when I huff and I puff, I can blow someone's house down. No, you're not going to teach your kids that. I mean, that's not the main point of the story. But do you, you see the sense of you when you can see that plot and you can understand how the characters work together, you can come with a main takeaway. Um, well, that was just simple, the three little pigs. Let's take an actual uh, Bible passage, an actual story. Let's turn to Genesis 22. This, is, this might be a familiar story to some of us. It's the sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his one and only son, his long-awaited son, Isaac. And this Bible story, I've heard taught lots of different ways. Um, like if we're thinking about discernment, if we're thinking about discerning how people talk about Genesis 22, I've heard it talked about... Um, like a main takeaway is uh, we have to sacrifice our idols. We just have to be willing to put our, what we idolize on the altar. Um, I've also heard it taught uh, as Abraham being a pillar of faith. It's, you know, the, the faith that he has in God. I've also heard this taught that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide for you. Well, which one is it, right? I, I think all of these ideas are really good. They're actually really helpful. I think they're, they're taken from Scripture. I think they're biblical principles. I think we should sacrifice our idols. I think we should trust that the Lord provides. I think that we should have faith. But we want to know, what is Genesis 22 about when I come to read it? What, what does God want for me in this passage? Right? What, what, what is this story, this narrative about the sacrifice of Isaac teaching me? Well, let's think about plot. And let me draw another little... We're going to read the text aloud together in a second. But before I do, just to help us to carry us along as we read it aloud, how do we identify the plot in a story, the plot in a narrative text? Here's a simple grid that will help us get there. And some of you literature people might, might already know where I'm going. Um, this is a picture of a plot arc. A plot arc. Do you know this, Mary? Yeah, you do. <laughs> Okay, this is a picture of a plot arc. Every plot fits into this arc. Every plot, any good plot at least, will fit into this arc. It starts off with a simple setting. Once upon a time, 
in a land far, far away, there were three little pigs and there was a wolf. Right, so you have this, you know, you, you, the characters are laid out, where it is, when it happened. You have a setting that you need to know about any story, right? But at some point, to make it a good book or a movie worth watching, because movies are also stories, stories told in picture form, it, anytime you, have, you watch something good, it's going to inevitably have a conflict that arises, there's going to be a conflict that arises. There, there's going to be some sort of tension. There's going to be the, uh, a rising action. There's going to be, um, so maybe, maybe it's a crisis. Um, oh no, the big bad wolf is coming to get us. Or maybe it's a love story and the setting is there's a boy and a girl and the conflict is the boy really likes the girl, but that girl does not like that boy. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but there's some sort of tension because you're like, oh, is the boy going to get the girl? We really want to know because we've seen this boy and he looks just great. And why doesn't this girl like the boy? Right? You, you can like, think of some rom-coms right now, can't you, that relate to this? So there's some sort of conflict. But for the story to go anywhere, we need a climax. The boy kisses the girl, maybe. Um, you, you, you need some sense of climax where there is a turning point, where the situation will inevitably change. It starts this reversal where it's a point of no return. That's our climax. And what comes out of that climax is something called a resolution. Now, if this is seeming somewhat literary or academic, just know um, it's really helpful to put some of these terms uh, in, into play when we study, um, just so we can label it, right? Just so we can have some common language with one another. Um, and this is this is how narratives work. This is how plot works, right? This is how this is how it's going to work in the Bible. So there's going to be some sort of resolution. So it's the change that comes out of that climax. It comes out of the turning point. Um, it's how the, in some ways, it's how the conflict is resolved. So where there was one tension going up, the boy likes the girl, but the girl doesn't like the boy. Well, the resolution that comes out is they get married, maybe, right? That you, you can see how they kind of parallel one another, but they're very different because one is the rising action and one is the falling action. One creates all the tension and one releases the tension, right? And then at the very end, they all live happily ever after in a new setting, there, there is now the husband and wife, or now the boy and girl are now husband and wife, and maybe they have some kids, and maybe they live somewhere else. Um, now the three little pigs are all healthy and alive, and they're living in the brick house together, right? There's some sort of new setting that comes out of it. Any questions on this so far? You want to see it in action? Genesis 22? Okay, let's read it aloud together, Genesis 22. And as it's read aloud, I want us to, to um, look for these things. I want us to look for these, uh, let me just erase that, oops. I want us to look for these um, five points on, on the plot arc um, as it's read aloud so that, so that as you're reading, you can see the... Um, load-bearing walls that go into it, okay? Um, why don't we split up the text, because it's kind of long now. We're going to read the whole chapter. Um, who can read verses 1 to 8? 
Okay, Brenda? And then maybe verses 9 to 14? Mary? And then 15 to the end? Okay, Heather, right? Yeah, okay. Um, who did I say go first? Brenda said go first. Okay. Well done. <laughs> That's very good. 
we were all impressed by hearing those words. How about, how about we just pray, because it's one of our guidelines, just pray that God would help us to understand this. God, thank you for this story in Genesis 22. We want to know what what is your message for us in this text, because we want to apply it to our lives well, so we may follow you so closely. Um, by your spirit, do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, another guideline that we employ when we want to find the main point of a text is context. So who can help us with the context behind this plot? Because um, this, this, I mean, it's a very striking story, isn't it? It's like child sacrifice. I mean, what is that about in the Bible? It just seems weird. Um, there's some context behind it, though. Who, who knows what context could help us understand this story? Okay, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids, and then God finally blessed them with a child. So who's Abraham? What's so important about him? He's a man that God called out of his native land. Yeah. Somewhere and, and start a people. That's right. Abraham is the one who is to start the people of God. And it's back, back in Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there. But back in Genesis 12 is where it kind of all begins for him. That the Lord says to, at that point his name was Abram, because it was changed eventually. But the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And then he and his wife couldn't have kids. So how on earth are they to have a great nation if they can't? actually make be fruitful and multiply right that doesn't quite make sense um but then they have a kid and it's isaac and then god says okay go kill him do you see the the um dilemma i mean one thing nobody wants to sacrifice their child right mamas Right? Nobody wants to sacrifice their child. Wow, I thought there would be more emotion with that. <laughs> I don't have children, but I wouldn't want the children I know to be sacrificed or killed. But for this guy, he's like, whoa, uh, but you want me to be fruitful and multiply and make this great nation. How I finally have a son after like a hundred years, and now you want me to kill him? Like, that, do you see how that doesn't make sense like for the context, how crucial this scene is leading up to it, that Abraham would follow through with this, right? I mean, yeah, this, the, the context really is crucial to understand the significance of this story. So, okay, let's pick it up then. Genesis 22, we've prayed, we've, we've thought about context. Now, in your own study, hopefully you're going to be thinking about this a lot more, but I chose a passage that's a little bit more familiar to some of us so that we can move through it more quickly yeah okay let's put this story onto the plot arc so let me just draw a new arc here for us so that we can and hopefully you were listening as you were listening you were thinking about how these verses could fit into the plot arc so why don't we just assign some verses to the different parts of the arc so when we think about the setting which again is um, describing the characters and what's happening and whatnot. Uh, wh- where do we see that? Obviously, this is an obvious answer because it starts in the beginning. Yes, right. It starts in the beginning. It starts in verse 1, doesn't it? We have God and we have Abraham. And what, what, what is that uh, setting with God and Abraham there in verse 1? What's happening? What, what does the, what does the story tell us? 
they're talking and that God is testing. Yeah, isn't that what it says? After these things, God tested Abraham. Well, that's pretty important to know that this isn't just anything. This is a test, right? That's that's what we're jumping into. We're, we're walking into God testing Abraham. It's not Abraham testing God. It's God testing Abraham. Well, I'm not quite sure how far this setting goes. Let me let me see the conflict. Where is thinking about um, context? Thinking about what we know about Abraham and his only son Isaac that he's waited forever for. Where does the tension start? Where does the conflict arise? Verse two, doesn't it? It starts right away in verse two. What how, what does it say there that we know there's some tension? Maybe. Yeah, take your son and kill him. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. I mean, wow, he just really keeps going on. He's really impressing it. Go and offer him there as a burnt offering, which means to sacrifice him, which means to kill him. That's a problem. That's a conflict. That's definitely, oh, no, that big bad wolf is coming after me. Yeah. That, that's a conflict. Well, it's that it's going to carry on, this conflict. You know, there's some discussion, and they go walking, and... Isaac's asking some questions, but there's a point in the story, there's a point in the plot where there's a climax, where there's a turning point, where the situation will inevitably change. Where does that come? If the conflict is, well, let's see. If we know it's a test, and then we know the conflict is the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Isaac, what's the turning point then? What, do you, what, do you, what does it say there in verse 10? Okay, so it looks like he's, gonna, he's about to do it. He's about to sacrifice. Angel of the Lord, what, it, what happens? What's, the, what's that turning point? What is it? Sorry, <laughs> for everybody to hear. Okay, there we go. So let's just say for the climax, maybe it starts somewhere around verse 10, maybe verse 11, somewhere around there, and then it goes to probably verse 12-ish. I don't know where, you know, as we keep reading this, we'll probably um, want to get it a little bit more closely. But at some point, the sacrifice is going forward. They're, they're gathering the wood. They're walking up to the place where it's going to happen. Abraham is reaching his hand out, and he's ready to do it because this is what God has told him to do. And then the angel of the Lord stops him. Just stops him. So that there's a, some sort of change, some sort of reversal. Like, the, the conflict is no longer going to be a conflict there, there's there's a change which is um, Abraham Abraham and he says here I am and verse 12 the angel says do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him so that's a drastic change from what he was just about to do for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me well that brings me back to the test, doesn't it? The test, like now I know that you fear God. So what's, what was the test in the beginning? I kind of just said it. Yeah, do you fear God? 
do you, do you, do you, well, let's keep going on this. See, these are the questions I'm going to ask in my own study when I'm reading it. Um, let's keep going on this uh, plot arc because we need to see the resolution. Where does the, um, where does the change come that comes out of the turning point? So if the turning point is don't kill him, now I know that you fear God. What's the resolution that comes out of that? Yeah, there's a ram that's offered, isn't it? Um, a substitute that comes, right? The Lord's providing a substitute here. Uh, in verse 13, it starts, Abraham went and he, he took the ram and he offered it up and um, they named the place and then the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time and says by myself, this is verse 15, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, again, your only son, I will surely bless you. This makes us think back to what I read earlier in Genesis 12. So um, just thinking about the context, it's connected to this fact that um, of God's promise that he will bless Abraham and make him a great nation. And then where do we get the happily ever after part? Where do we get the new setting? Where, where do we see that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a new, it's almost like a new plot arc is going to start at some point because this is narrative after narrative after narrative. Where do we see that begin <laughs> You see it in verse 17? Yeah, yeah, I see where you're going with that. I might say that verse 17 still continues with the resolution because as the um, conflict was that the only son would die, now in the resolution, the only son will not only live, but through that only son will make a great nation. Yeah, I think, I think that uh, those two um, parallel one another. Um, so where do we see, if we go down a little bit further, yeah, maybe verse 19 is a good place to say that's where a new setting starts. So Abraham returned to his young men. Um, so we're seeing how the, um, even the geography is changing there because they went to Beersheba. Um, I mean, you might want to say maybe it's in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told, and then you see all this, the generations going forward. Honestly, we don't need to be too picky exactly at where the verses are, but we can generally see the plot arc, can't we? Yeah, we can generally see where, where it goes. Now, at any time, so let me just, if I just want to fill this out, um, I guess we can go, oops, sorry, guys, 18 and then 19 to 24. Um, Normally when we have a plot arc, the main idea, the takeaway, the moral of the story happens in the climax. That's, that's, us, that, that's going to be our clearest point to know what's the main point. But the climax obviously is informed by all the other parts on the plot arc. It has to be informed by the fact that this is a test in the setting and by the fact that it's his only son that's being sacrificed, but the resolution that there is a substitute um, but the but the climax is going to be our key so remember in, in the beginning I started with a couple of different ideas about this story about is it needing to sacrifice our idols is that the takeaway is it um, that the Lord will provide is it that um, Abraham was faithful um, any guesses? Is it something else? Who wants to take a guess? It would... 
we think the main takeaway could be. And this is what I do in my study, by the way. I throw out some different options. I'm like, is this what it is? And then I kind of test it to see if I'm right or not. Who wants to try? Heather? And where do you get it? Where do you get that from? Just he did what the Lord told him. He did what the Lord told him. Yeah. Because you have not uh, because you have done this, and I have and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. Yeah. Yeah, I, so this gets us there, just looking at the fact, um, thinking about the history behind it and seeing how he said, you haven't done this, you, 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 um, you haven't withheld your son, or to put it positively, you put forward your son like I asked you to do, yeah? Um, what, what's another way that can get us there? That's really good. Mary? He passed the test, right? Yeah. Any pet? Well, and what's the test? Because in verse one, it doesn't tell us what the test is, right? So, what is that test? Now I know that you fear God. Yeah, and that's it. Fear is faith, is trust. Um, in verse twelve, there, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son from me. So, I think if let me, let me just sort of put like a wrap up on this story, so we can look at another text. Um, I think it's good to think about uh, we need to sacrifice our idols, like we need to get rid of our idols. I think that's really good. I think it's an incomplete takeaway from this story, though, because in this story, we don't see Abraham see we don't see Abraham treating his son like an idol. We don't see that actually. And furthermore, we don't actually see that idol being sacrificed. Abraham wasn't killed, or sorry, Isaac wasn't even killed. So how could the moral of the story be sacrifice your idols when that very thing wasn't sacrificed, wasn't killed, right? So let's throw that one away. For Genesis 22, it's still a good principle. It's still godly and great, but it's probably not what Genesis 22 is getting at. And that's what we want. We want to know what is God saying to us from this passage, right? Okay, let's think about the Lord will provide. I mean, I read this story and I'm like, well, this is Jesus all over the place, isn't it? It's um, Jesus is what the Lord has provided as the sacrifice, right? Well, I know Shino is going to get to connecting to the gospel, but... It's interesting in this that when you think about Jesus as, as the, the substitute, as the ram, he's actually also Isaac. He is the son who, through whom he would bless, that God would bless the nations. Isn't that intriguing? That he is Isaac, that he comes through that whole line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah through the whole line. He is that son through whom all the nations will be blessed. And yet he's the ram. He's that substitute. So yes, the Lord will provide. Absolutely. And I think that's something, maybe it's a, a secondary takeaway from this text that the Lord will provide for us. But what is it that he's providing He's providing salvation. That's right. It's not just that he's going to provide me um, 
enough money to make it through the day. I don't think that's what this text is talking about. I, I, I think it's pro, the pro, providing of a blessing, the providing of a, a provision of, of, of salvation. But this, that could be a secondary takeaway. But the main takeaway is this Father Abraham, this pillar of faith that knew God promised, God said to him, through you, I will greatly bless you, all the nations, through you. And guess what? Abraham believed that. He believed in God's promise so much that he was willing to say, you want to take away the only thing that through which uh, I will be fruitful and multiply? Because, you know, my wife's over 100 years old, and I, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to, will you do that again, Lord? I don't know. Well, clearly Abraham thought either God would somehow save Isaac or God would somehow make Sarah be pregnant again. Um, I don't know exactly what he thought, but he trusted in the promise. He trusted that the Lord, when the Lord promised in Genesis 12 that all the nations would be blessed and that through him would a great nation be created, he was willing to, to do what the Lord asked him to do because he trusted in the Lord's promise. Man, I need to hear that message. I really need to hear that I, I can trust God's promise. I really need to hear that. I mean, there's promises throughout Scripture. I frequently do not trust that. I, I frequently do not trust that he will keep his promises. But from this text, I think we can say he is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And I don't know how he's going to do it. He might ask me to do some things that I don't really want to do, but I, I trust his promise. I think that's our main takeaway from this text. What, what sort of questions do you have? Or even like pushback if you want to say, Man, I don't know if I follow you. If, that's the way I go with it. Yeah. Okay. The book of Hebrews. even one of the tools we, or one of the strategies we talked about in the context instruction last time was to go to different parts of the Bible um, using cross-references, and I don't know if anybody here has a Bible that has cross-references in it. Does anybody? Okay, so maybe even from, if you were in reading Genesis 22, it might cross-reference you to the Hebrews passage, because if all of you are wondering, how, do, how on earth did... Amanda, get there. How did she get to Hebrews? You know, it may, it's probably, was it a cross-reference or is it because you know your Bible? She just knew her Bible. Yeah. Which there's no substitute for that. To put your Bible together is just by reading it and studying it a lot. But even if you were in Genesis 22, if you guys are there still in Genesis 22, in verse 5, when he's about, he's going to go sacrifice his son, he says there, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And if you... Um, a good study Bible would help you see this, but the, the verb there, um, and come again to you, is a plural in the sense that Abraham will come with his son back. So in other words, he's trusting 
Abraham, this is kind of getting into the details, um, but he's trusting that I know God's asking me to go kill my son, but I, I'm trusting that I'm going to come back with him, whether I'm not going to actually do it or whether he's going to raise him from the dead, which is to the point in Hebrews, right? But, um, the resurrection from the I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm going to come back. Yeah, that's so striking, isn't it? Other questions? Observations? Um, Heather. I just have a question. Um, in verse... Where is it? In verse 7, he says that there... Um, we have a fire in the wood, where is the lamb? Yeah, where is the and lamb? Over, and again, he says that God will provide the lamb, but in the end, he actually provides a ram instead of a lamb. Hmm. So, like, would you... Well, I'm just like, curious to know, like, if yeah yeah a lamb and a ram are definitely two different things i don't know the answer to that that's a very good question though um let's follow up later i'm not sure anybody have thoughts on it anybody have a study bible where it explains it The lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But like, just the fact that like people were expecting yeah. Messiah that Jesus yeah. did not look like, and mm-hmm. I, it's, it's such yeah. like, one of those yeah. like kitschy things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I th- well, I think just to, for, to to wrap up this question, I think um, this is a good detail that we should explore. Absolutely, I think it'd be fun. Aren't we all sort of intrigued by this now? We're like, what is the difference, right? Um, and we should. Uh, but just thinking about trying to come clear on a big idea, on a main point, I think we can safely say it has to deal with this climax of um, fearing God, of trusting His promise, of, of trusting the Lord in the promises that He makes, that He will keep those promises. Now, that's... Obviously, that's just like one or two sentences that I said, but you're going to take a lot more away from your study. My, the goal here is just to sort of grab the main thrust of the passage. And then, like, let's study up some of those things. Let's see what it, what's the significance behind um, the lamb and the ramp. Maybe there's some significance behind uh, these places in verses 19 and following and the people. I don't know. Like, let's, let's do some of that study and figure that out. It'd be really fun, wouldn't it? Anything else? Amanda. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Don't you just want to keep going? And, and I mean, it's sort of starting to study makes it um, a, a desirable to want to keep going and find out more. Yeah, I, w- I, would, I would want to explore more of that too. Yeah. 
We're out of time. Can you believe that? We're already out of time. I have like six more pages of notes that I could go through with four or five more texts that we could work through. Um, do you want me to do one in discourse? So how are we going to do that? Just at, take, time, take time out of the Q&A at the end? Do you guys want to try another architectural design besides narrative? Nobody's going to admit it. <laughs> you want to just, okay, let's just do a quick one. Okay, let, let, we're, okay let me go back to uh, another one of our... Um, we're going to think about... Um, well, I say letters, but the overarching term I want to use is discourse. Like how there's a colonial, a craftsman, a Victorian, a ranch, a split level, lots of different architectural designs. You have narrative in scripture, and you have something called discourse. So discourse is... Honestly, I didn't know what that term meant when I first learned it, but I totally understand the concept behind it. So it's a very common concept. We all understand the concept, but the term might be new to us. So discourse is simply um, the type of literature where it, a type type of literature in the Bible where a single person is speaking, and it has a logical flow to it. So all of the letters. Um, that we see in the New Testament, we call them epistles. All of those is one person speaking, like the Apostle Paul. He's just writing a letter, and he ha there's a logical flow to it. You know, he says things like, "If Christ was risen from the dead, then you should believe in him, or then you should walk in him." Right? It, there's this flow. Um, we also have uh, speeches of. Jesus Christ and the Gospels. The Sermon on the Mount is a speech that he gave. Um, we even have it in Old Testament, um, like when the law was given, in a sense. That's, that's the um, prophet Moses speaking to the people with a logical flow to it, trying to convince them of something, to do something. Um, so we get this, right? That's the fancy word. The, lit the literary structural term for it is discourse. Okay, that's it's just that's the overarching heading for it. Um, so if stories have the traits of plot and characters, if, the, if that's a foundation for that, then in discourse, the key thing in discourse is grammar. That is our. That, that's going to be our main thing is grammar. So we have discourse. We want to think about grammar. How language is used. Again, I am so not an English person at all. So this is hard for me to, to really sift through. Um, but it's worth doing. It's so worth, it's just, it makes the Bible come alive and it's so much more fun um, when, we, when we can really see how grammar works. So um, within grammar, what, what does grammar mean? Just like for plot, you have that plot arc. So within grammar, what, what are some terms that you could say are important when it comes to grammar? Maybe some of you English people. I'm looking at the English teacher. <laughs> say it again. So like, um, you know, let me put, um, I mean, can I put a, a grander, I don't even know if this is a grander category, but the idea of transitional words, which are like conjunctions, right? But transitional words, um, like if, then, you know, if this, then that, it, it, 
it transitions, it connects, it conjuncts. Can, is that uh, English? Yeah, okay. Um, okay, what about um, therefore? Right, therefore. What, what, what do you always ask when you see therefore? What is the therefore? Therefore. Yeah, what does it connect? Um, what are some other transitional words or connecting words? However. So, yeah, or so that. But. Furthermore. Yeah, there's because that shows you that the logical flow of the author, he's trying to continue his thought likewise. That's another one, right? They're, they're all over the epistles and the speeches, everywhere. It's just, this is really key when it comes to grammar, transitional words. What else when it comes to grammar? Punctuation. Punctuation, like, for example... Yeah, okay, you said a couple of different things in there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to actually label this as like a tone. So, what's the tone of the author at that point in his speech or in his letter? Um, some of you might be familiar with the letter to the Galatians. I don't know have we ever preached on that here or heard it preached? No. Okay. Um, maybe you studied Galatians. What's the tone of Galatians? Does anybody know? That maybe is different from Paul's letters, Paul's, uh, Paul's other letters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, actually, you want to just go there really quickly um, to Galatians. Let's see. Um, it's right after Second Corinthians, so you got Romans, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Galatians. Um, a lot of Paul's letters start off with this thanksgiving and, you know, I thank God always for you and all my prayers, right? But how does Paul start this one after he says who he is and to whom he's writing? So he's Paul and he's writing to the churches in Galatia. Verse 6 has no sort of thanksgiving or love. He just starts with, I am astonished that you are so quickly discerning him who called you. Okay, what's the tone? Yeah, there's, there's a sense of rebuke. I mean, it's a pleading. Yeah, like come back to faith. There, there, there's a tone in the way he uses his words, the way he uses his grammar. That's really good. Another thing that Heather mentioned was um, this. She, she said the word command. So I want to say verbs. Or, or let, let, let me even say verb tense. Verb tense is so key in epistles. Is it a command? Is it imperative? Is he asking them to do something? Um, is it a indicative, which is a statement, right? So if an imperative is an action, an indicative is a statement. Is it a present indicative, a present statement? Is it a past statement? Is it a future statement? Christ died. Christ forgives present. Christ will come future. Those all make a huge difference when it comes to grammar, the verb tense. Um, let me just throw up another uh, quick one. This works actually in any literature, anywhere you're um, studying anything, is repeated words. It's, so it's not really technically under grammar, but just, you know, along with this idea of grammar and words and how someone uses their words to get a point across. If I already mentioned, if they're repeating a word over and over, I mean, that makes a difference. That it's, that's, he's probably getting a, a, a main idea there. Um, you want to just look at a quick text together? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pick a, a familiar one. I think this is somewhat familiar. Go to Titus 
2. Okay, so if you were in Galatians, keep going to the right, and it's like really teeny. It goes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus. After Titus comes Hebrews, so, well, Philemon, then Hebrews. So if you get to Hebrews, back up to Titus, two books. I have to say that because I never know where books are, and I'm always flipping through trying to find the book. Okay, so Titus 2, um, maybe you guys are familiar with some Titus 2 ministries. Have you ever heard of a Titus 2 ministry? What, what is that ministry? Anybody? Yeah, it's women mentorship, women discipleship, isn't it? Yeah, we think of Titus 2 as um, older women mentoring younger women. Sort of this internal discipleship within the church um, to raise up godly women, right? Yeah. Um, is that what Titus 2 is about? Is that the main point of Titus 2? Uh, let's just employ some of these uh, strategies uh, for grammar. Let's look at just verses 1 to 10. We have a connecting word in verse 11, the word for. Um, but for the sake of time, let's just look at, look at the first 10 verses. Can someone read it aloud for us, all 10 verses? Who wants to do that? Or, or Jocelyn can. And as Jocelyn reads it... Um, Listen for transitional words, so, but, so that, therefore, because, likewise, however. Um, look for some tone in there. Um, check out the verb tenses. If there's imperatives or indicatives, which are statements, is it future, present, past, what is it? Um, are, is there any repeated words? Or actually, let me also say repeated ideas. Sometimes they can use different words, but there's sort of, there's a repetition to it that you, you can sense. Um, and, and we're trying to get at the architectural structure, right? That's the, that's the goal. These strategies here get to those load-bearing walls behind all of the details. Okay, Jocelyn. Thank you. Okay, let me pray real quick because that's what we do, right? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this text. Help us understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes my prayers are that quick, right? Lord, just help me. I just keep saying them through the whole time, every time I study, throughout my study. Okay, some of the context here is that Titus is um, 
commissioned by Paul to be on this island called Crete to appoint, um, to put the churches in order on that island. And the chapter before talks about appointing elders to be teaching sound doctrine and rebuking false teachers. And then he moves here to chapter 2. Um, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, and so on and so forth. What are some of the things that you notice based on the strategies here for grammar? What are some things that you notice? Repeated words, ideas, tenses, tone, transition words. What, what did you point out? What did you see? There's a lot of transition words. Yeah, what, what kind of transition words did you see? I'm actually going to do something here. I'm going to see if I can just take a picture of the text and we can do this together. Is that weird? Y'all want to do that? So now we can do it together, right? Okay, use photo. Here we go. Okay. So, does someone say fancy? This This seems like ridiculously fancy, doesn't it? Okay. All right, here we go. So let's do some highlighting. We saw some transitional words, and you said but was one. Is that easy to see, or is that really hard to see? Okay, you get the point, though, right? Okay, but where else do you see transitional word? Yeah, we have a likewise there. There was another likewise earlier, too. Verse 3, older women likewise. Yep, what else do you see? Sorry. Verse 4, and so. And so. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually, well, yeah, and so. That's good. What else? There were a couple other so's or so that's, weren't there? Yeah. Where Where were those? Actually, let me switch. I'm going to switch to red just so we can get. So we have a so there. We have verse 8. Um, so that. Verse 10, we have a so that. Um, actually, verse 5, we have a that. That the word of God, or a so that the word of God may not be reviled. Um, that's interesting, right? That we've got. What, what does so that mean? Like, what is that? Yeah, it's giving a reason, right? So there's all these actions sort of being called for so that, so that there's a result that will happen um, from, from some of these calls to action, I guess. Okay, what, what other, well, can I go back to here? So what about verb tenses? What do you see? What are some verb tenses? Or the tone, or yeah. So right now, um, well, Titus himself is to teach what accords with sound doctrine, um, but then the older men are right now to be something, right? It's sort of, yeah, it's a very present reality, um, not what's past, but but right now, um, the older women are to uh, be reverent. It, there's a sense of command, isn't it? There's a sense of command in this that he's supposed to teach these things, even though it's not technically a verb tense of imperative, but this is what they are to do, what they are to be. What, what are some re- repeated ideas or words they may see? A sense of repetition? Self-control. Self-control. That was actually, that's repeated throughout um, the book of Titus. That, that is an interesting one. Yeah. Teach. Where do you see Teach. 
In verse 1, yeah. So that's to Titus. So verse 1, Titus is to teach. And then in verse 7, he goes back to Titus, show yourself um, to be a model. And in your teaching, show integrity. Um, yeah. Yeah, soundness of doctrine, that's in verse 1. But as you teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then at the very end, that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The soundness of speech in verse 8, right? Sound speech, yeah, that's good. That kind of goes along with teaching, doesn't it, a little bit? Um, Any other repetition of ideas? So I, I, you know what? I didn't actually get that my highlighter up yet. So where was self-control? In the men, older men, in verse two, and then in verse six, right? Where is it? Verse six, six. Oh, is it? Oh, and the young women. That's right. And the young women. Yeah. Um, one re- one repetitive idea that I saw when I studied this, because I think of Titus two ministries and I think of women, um, but I was shocked to see that when Paul asked Titus to teach sound doctrine. He's asking him to teach older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves are in there too. There's sort of that that repetitiveness, like in Genesis 1, when all the days are created, you know, all the days happen, there's creation, there's different things being created along the way. Well, here we've got this order. We've got the older men, the older, like everybody's included, aren't they? Yeah, that was really striking to me. This, so if I'm thinking about the main idea of this text, and he's not missing a people group at all in the church, that is intriguing to me. There, there, you know, that makes me think, well, that's probably going to get me somewhere at least. Um, did anybody else notice that? The repetition of the people? Go ahead. Just because I studied it. Like just yeah. Recently. You just studied this recently. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Nancy Lee DeMosses? Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I want to, yeah. Um, I, well, so to, your, to, your, to Heather's point, we're just spending a few minutes right now looking at this, right? We're just gleaning, and we're doing it with 20 of our closest friends, right? So we're getting, I, people are seeing things that we're not seeing, and man, I wish I had that in the, every morning when I study my Bible. I wish I had other people to say, what do you see in this text, right? Um, so just know, like, the more we study, the more we study this passage, the more, like, Genesis 22, I stu- I've studied that so many times to finally come clear on it, and I still don't know all the answers, like the lamb and the ram, right? So there, I, I think just coming at it for a couple of minutes is, we need to recognize we're only spending a couple of minutes right now, but the more we study, the more we can come clear on it. So let's just take some, some guesses at, this is not the final answer, but just some ideas at what could be a main idea or a main takeaway from Titus 2, 1 to 10. What would someone want to just guess? Anybody? This is why I do my study. I just throw stuff out there. See if it sticks. Harry, you look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. I, I, 
That's excellent. Have you just recently studied this? <laughs> but just from using some of these strategies, some of these reading strategies, how, how quickly it is to get there. So there's a behavior that's called for, maybe we could even see among all of God's people, not just certain groups, but everybody um, is responsible for this. And there's going to be some sort of result. And that those results come in the so that. And I actually really want to point this out because I think this would be helpful for us. The so that's in this passage are really key. There's four of them, aren't there? There's the, That's what the red is. The red or pink. What does it look like to you, right? Um, there, there's four of them there. And each of those um, so that's have a um, outward looking sense. So let's just look at them real quick. Verse four. So the older women are to teach what is good. Verse four. And so train the love women to, so train the young women to do all these different things. I'm kind of surrounded in their marriage and, and their home, but, um, uh, also uh, that they are to be self-controlled. And at the end of verse 5, we have this, so that so that the word of God may not be reviled. Reviled by whom? Well, if we read the context, we would know there's lots of outsiders that are trying to say the true gospel is not true. Um, so uh, just simply by the behaviors of the people, the word of God <laughs> will not be reviled by outsiders. And then in verse 8, we have um, another result, another so that, so that an opponent, an opponent to the gospel, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then again in verse 10, it, it's put positively. So the word won't be reviled, and an opponent may be put to shame. But verse 10 they do these behavior things so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior or make attractive to outsiders the doctrine of God our Savior. These so-that's, if I can just wrap this up, these so-that's are very outward-looking. They're, they're very much how the world is looking at us. And it's, so it's intriguing when you think of Titus II ministries that are very internal. It's older women mentoring younger women, discipling with an internal focus, where Titus 2, 1 to 10 is very outward focused. It's, the results are not just for me to be mature. That's a good and godly thing and a great biblical principle that we need to communicate. Maybe not from Titus 2, 1 to 10, because it's very outward looking and it's not internal. Um, the, the result is that others would, would be, have nothing evil to say about us. It, it's so that others can be drawn to the attractiveness of the gospel. It's so that others will see you can't revile the word of God. You just can't do that. Right? Do you see that that the fullness that you get when you just study to find the main point from there? There can be other principles that are so true and great, but I think they're incomplete. I think I think there's so much more that God wants us to get from from the Bible if we just employ some of these strategies related to literary structure. Um, we gotta take a break. We could keep doing this. Does anybody wanna? Any observations, impressions based on discourse, literary structure of discourse, Mary? So you can't really use this um, passage to say that women should be doing it when not working. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. <laughs> well, well yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I, I don't know that I really want to get into that. Um, the, the, yeah, we... <laughs> Doctrine around that. This is what Titus is saying. 
Yeah, so, okay, to, to Mary's point, I think I might, I might want to say another principle, like um, we shouldn't be imposing our own frameworks on the text. I think we should really try to stay on the line to what God is saying. Um, I think there's good principles that we can grasp from this. But what I wanted to really come across with today is when we come to read Scripture, just to have fruitful Bible reading and to have discernment, I think we can come clear on a main idea. I think we can, I, I don't want us to feel like, oh, we need to go now, like throw away all of our books on our bookshelf because they didn't get Titus 2 right or they didn't get Genesis 22. No, I think there's still some great things in there. Um, but for fruitful Bible reading, there's just simple strategies that can help us to see stuff that maybe we would miss. And man, I don't want to miss God's message at all. Did that answer your question, Mary? Any other observations, interactions, questions? Heather? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't want to have us land too closely on it because we didn't spend a lot of time, but just this general principle of there are these behaviors called for among all of God's people that to the outside world, that have an outward focus, that to the outside world make attractive the, the, the gospel. Um, I would need to put this in the literary context of verses 11 and following where it talks about the, the actual gospel. In other words, I, I'm not promoting a gospel of works. It's not at all that, oh, it's just in what we do that will save us and save others. No, it's Jesus. And the next few verses very clearly explain that. Yeah, but that, that's what I would say is, is the main takeaway from here. Um, it's that all the church is responsible for the godly living that has an outward focus to make others come to faith. I don't know, you know. Or to encourage others to come to faith. That's probably a better word. Because it's Jesus that opens the eyes, right? Our works don't. Jesus opens the eyes of people. Yeah. All right, can I pray and then we'll take a break? Okay. God, thank you for this time. What a, what fun to just open your word with other sisters in Christ to see all that's in there. God, would you help us when we go home and we're on our own and we're discerning and we're, we want fruitful Bible reading, would you help us remember some of these simple strategies that, that you've given us in your literary structure in the Bible? Um, we're grateful for your word that trains us and equips us for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you want to take a, a, like a 10-minute break? And then, um, so come back at like, what time? Shainu? 11.55? Yeah, 10.55. Why don't we come back at 10.55? Please take more food.